Welcome to Doing Sustainability, a podcast that features practical and actionable approaches to sustainability, brought to you by Baker. In every episode, we have enlightened conversations with corporate and business leaders on the vision, motivation, actions, and impacts of sustainability. We discuss best practices, fresh perspectives, tips, and solutions to help a company demonstrate its ESG commitment and position themselves for long-term success. Hi, I'm your host, Rocket. And I'm your host, Gary. Let's start the show. Today, we're speaking with Joan Michelson. Joan, great to have you on the show, doing sustainability. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. Yes. Uh, I don't really have my co-host here, Rocket, but uh, she's out of town and can't be with us. So we're just going to march forward here. Okay. A little bit about Joan. For over 20 years, she's worked with Fortune 500 companies as a leader at Chrysler, Deloitte, and American Express, including having led record-breaking results and innovative strategies. She's a consultant and coach to many leaders of small and medium-sized businesses, helping them find their voice. That's a brand term we use, voice, as one of her clients put it, and expand their impact. Highly regarded journals published across media platforms, including Forbes, HuffPost, Atlantic.com, The New Economy Magazine, CBS, NBC, and many others. She's self-employed, working as an ESG-related partnership in consulting for Green Connections Media. And she's also the executive producer and host of the Electric Ladies podcast, where she interviews groundbreaking women, innovators, and leaders focused on energy and sustainability and a hell of a lot more. Welcome. Thank so, you. I appreciate it. I'm yeah. So to be here. So, yeah, well, I'm excited to have you. Let's talk about Electric Ladies. Uh, I see that you either have published one on, you get a group together, you get five people together, and you hit some really important topics. So actually, what I think what you're referring to is a composite episode that I air uh, every so often. I actually interview individual women. They are everything. I have over 400 episodes. The energy, sustainability, and climate world affects every industry. And so my guests range across every industry. I have automotive, I have sustainable fashion, I have transportation, infrastructure, policy, clean energy. I've invited some oil and gas people. I mean, every aspect of our economy, film and television, communications, literally every aspect. And I've been doing a bunch, which we can talk about a little bit too, on storytelling and how we need to find a different way to talk about the climate crisis to motivate people to do sustainability, akin to your name and your show. The episode that you probably saw is one of several that I've done that is a composite of just the career advice from each of five women. At the end of every episode, I also ask for career advice for mid-career women. And that's an important part of it. And so some of my listeners asked me to do episodes that were just the career advice. And so I try to combine women from different angles of our world into uh, one episode to give a taste of what they have to say. And that's a 
longer conversation with. Yes. What do you enjoy the most about doing this podcast? What do I enjoy the most is, well, there's several things. One is I learn a ton. I'm information junkie. I mean, as a journalist and the communicator, as a businesswoman, I'm just a sponge for information. I, I joke that I have a PhD in curiosity. And so I learn a lot and I get to meet extraordinary people doing extraordinary things. And frankly, I love the one-on-one where we can talk about things that they don't normally talk about. And in fact, a lot of times the, the corporate leaders who have their PR people, you know, prepare them, come to me and they say, oh, this is great. I'm not going to be talking about anything they prepared me for. This is much more fun. (laughs) And they're amazing women. They're doing, you know, I I dive into some of the C-level executives of General Motors. How are you actually transitioning a 125-year-old company from one product set to another? I mean, how does that actually work? Takes me into the room, you know? So, we talk about that. We talk about, and as I said a minute ago, I get career advice at the end. And so I think what I like the most is the people and the opportunity to have a conversation about how we actually do this work and what it takes. I opened up your bio talking about well, you worked at Fortune 500 companies as a leader in Chrysler, Deloitte, American Express. Perhaps you worked at others. Well, Having to identify any company in particular, what did you learn while you were working in corporate America? I actually like corporate America. I don't have anything. I mean, there's a lot of people who call themselves corporate refugees and, you know, I escaped. That's not my jam. I loved the people that I worked with for the most part. I mean, there are a couple of jerks to their yang, but we won't get into that. But they're the people at Chrysler. I mean, Chrysler changed my life for the better. They got me into the green economy by recruiting me to head up communications and co-head marketing for the electric car division. And I got into the green economy that way. And the people there were interesting, smart, dedicated, really cool people. And so, you know, corporate America has a very important role to play in this transition. They have the resources, they have the talent, and they are being nudged by their customers, their employees, even their suppliers, their investors, and obviously regulators to do this work. They know it's the right thing to do. So it's almost like, I mean, obviously we have the Inflation Reduction Act and the Infrastructure Bill and the CHIPS Act that that expedited to put a lot of the funding behind it. But the market force is really strong driving this change. And so even before we had all that money from those legislation, the corporate sector was doing this work anyway and doing it in many cases enthusiastically. And what's interesting, just as a quick thing to think about, is it used to be that the people who were in sustainability were kind of on the side, they were, okay, well, we'll just put them over here and they didn't have a budget and they didn't have a team and they didn't have room. And it was the kind of a placeholder. Now their talent is being tapped into the C-suite because it's like, wait a minute, we don't have a choice. We have to do this. And now we have the regulators and we have the SEC. And so that talent is actually has a more center stage. And if they're not thinking about their sustainability strategy at the same time, they're thinking about their business strategy and in their planning, they're going to be in trouble. Exactly. And they have to do it with transparency and accountability. It has to be verified by a third party. 
They have to show their work. It's used to say in school. They have to not just give the answer. They have to show their work. Uh, tomorrow, I'm going to be uh, doing a uh, host the moderator at a roundtable and uh, for Neary, and it's about ESG impact and strategic messaging. So, oh wow! Can I go too? Yes, please. <laughs> It's in Palace Verde, so it may be a bit of a walk for you. But, <laughs> uh, and, and it can be a little rainy, but uh, it's going to be very, very exciting. Also, it says that you led record-breaking results with innovative strategies. So you just gave us a little bit of an idea, working with Chrysler and working with electric cars. Any other kind of innovative strategies, breaking results you want to share? You know, the... One of my favorite strategies, I should say, is building partnerships. I love internal and external partnerships. And so, for example, at Chrysler, I really did both. I built internal and external partnerships, and I started them from scratch. I read some of the market research when I got there, and it was, I mean, you're a branding guy. You know that sometimes you get these summaries that are bland, and you know that there's more guts in there because they did this massive research. And so I ignore the summary, and I go into the real data. And I could see AARP screaming at me. And so I went to my boss and I said, president of the company, the one who recruited me, and I said, I just want to go build a partnership with AARP. And he goes, I don't know what you're talking about, but if you go talk to them, I'm not paying for you to go back there because I was in the Midwest at the time. But I was going, coming back to D.C. to speak on, at an event anyway. So I said, well, I'm going to be there. Can I set up a meeting? So I cold called. I literally cold called AERP. I got this guy on the phone and chatted about the cars, told him I was going to be in D.C. Make a long story short, I made a meeting with him. I walked into the meeting. I thought it was going to be him and me over his desk. And there were six people in a conference room. And I left there two and a half hours later with a, a multidimensional deal partnership that was ending up to be so successful that Chrysler adopted it for the whole company. And it was legislation, it was events, it was properties, it was, I mean, a whole shooting match of stuff, a, a whole um, portfolio, really, that was a win-win-win, including to the planet. And I love that stuff. I negotiated deals with real estate developers to put our cars in with the sale of the house. The house came with an electric vehicle and the charger. And it was like, people would look at me and they go, they agreed to that? <laughs> like, you know, so partnerships are to me the magic because you're it's leverage, it's creative, it's building relationships, they drive results exponentially. Yeah. I'm gonna change the topic on you. I'm gonna talk about okay. I think the topic is greenwashing. Uh, I read an article recently about Ford and GM, how they lobbied the Trump administration in 2017 to weaken fuel standards, while publicly they were touting their commitment to the Paris Accord. And last year, Microsoft was the only one of America's five big tech companies to endorse the Inflation Reduction Act, while others such as Amazon and Apple remain quiet despite often bragging about their green credentials. Well, I don't know where you're reading that from, but I interviewed, but a lot of executives were very, very, very supportive of the Inflation Reduction Act. In fact, Ceres, the ERES, the nonprofit that works directly with corporations and the business sector in general, 
I interviewed their head of government and industry relations about their success in rallying the private sector behind the Inflation Reduction Act and the infrastructure bill. And so I'm not sure where that reporting came from, but there's been the private sector has been very supportive of it. In fact, I was talking to Mary Barra at, uh, at Aspen this past summer, and I was pushing back on why or asking her why she pushed back on the SEC forthcoming climate risk disclosure rules because they've been ahead of the pack. And she was concerned that they didn't have the infrastructure to verify all the data that the SEC was asking for, but they're on board. I mean, they are literally transforming their entire company manufacturing process to make only electric vehicles. They have made a public disclosure that they're going to stop making internal combustion engine vehicles. And Ford is doing very well. I mean, Ford's bandwagon because of Bill Ford for decades. You know, the private sector is very much supportive of it. In fact, there was research that's come out recently. A lot of companies are doing this work. What, what they are doing is they're not talking about it as much because they're tired of the screaming, what I call the screaming meanies. Yeah. They're tired of getting the, you know, you're always going to offend somebody and with social media now being so vitriolic and only the people who are screaming bloody murder end up making a row on it, the people who are supportive don't really speak up as much, right? So they're just doing the right thing. They're doing the work and they're not making as big a deal of it anymore. One of my guests I had on recently, and I've heard this term before, said they it's described as green hushing. Yes. And they're not talking about it as much, but they're doing the work. And in fact, they have to because the International Sustainable Standards Board is requiring all these standards and every company is global now. So you can't, and the SEC, as I said, is coming out with its rules almost any day now, but certainly soon. And so you can't not do this work, especially if you want to employ people because employees are requiring it. Just as a quick anecdote, I've had guests on my show from huge tech companies say to me, tech companies in particular, but others as well, say, and they work in sustainability, but they've been contacted by people in other departments in their company who say, hey, I've got this candidate that I really, you know, want to, I'm interested in, but they want to verify our sustainability footprint. Can you talk to them for a few minutes? And that's happening a lot. I mean, there's studies that show something like 62-something percent of people in the, well, really any generation, but especially in millennials and Gen Z, they only want to work for companies that have a bona fide sustainability ESG program. And they want to validate it. Yes. They want to be a part of it. They want to be a part of it. They want to be a part of the solution, not a part of the problem. Exactly. Let's talk about how you help small and medium-sized businesses find their voice and expand their impact. I do the same sort of thing in a branding sense, but I'm curious on to hear your approach. Well, the approach is dictated by the challenge, right? So I've had energy company, energy-related consulting firms who come to me, you know, we're not getting the traction that we should, especially with the speaking and blah, blah, blah that we're doing. And so what we look at is what is the message that they are burning to get out? What's working? I mean, I have strategies for mapping stuff out and seeing what's resonating with who, where, how, and you don't always know the why. 
that you can kind of deduce it. I mean, there's all kinds of tools. You can use surveys, you can use existing, and I mean, conducting original surveys, but you can also use existing research. In today's world, there's so many ways to get your content out that it's more about being heard as much as it is about figuring out what your voice is. And even when I'm doing coaching with people for their own careers, it's about what parts of you do you want to give a voice to? And a company is the same thing. It's a, you know, in branding, it's a personality, right? And so it's, what do you want to put forward first? What is the voice that you have either of the organization or of you? And what parts of that portfolio of what you do is most relevant today? What's the intersection between what you do well, where the marketplace is, and the message you really want to get across? And it's in that Venn diagram is where the magic is. And then we see what fits with that and how do you express that in different avenues. Some of my clients have ended up writing books, organization or individual. Some of them, and I mean, I think brand creating content is a really good way to show what you know. We can't give out free toothpaste, so we can give out free knowledge, right? So it's an important way, and there's all these free workshops and stuff. So it really depends on what the organization is doing and what industry they're in. I mean, I could do a hot seat with somebody and and figure out where they're, an angle that they might go to off the top. But it really depends on where their intersection is with the clean, green economy, too. Because a lot of these companies, I mean, obviously, I'm in this sector, and so people come to me because I understand their world. But I also have companies come to me and say, we've been, you know, we see, or one, like there, somebody on their team who says, we under, you know, I understand that there's this opportunity, especially with the new federal funding, but I don't know how to get this across to my management. I don't know how to pivot, how to help the company pivot to tap that part of the economy and those benefits. So can you help? And so we develop strategies that both show one angle is showing the management team where these opportunities are and what for their business specifically. And then we put together strategies for how to help them actually tap that. And so it really depends whether they're financial services, automotive, clothing, I mean, energy, I mean, it's obviously energy is energy. But even so, I mean, in today's world, there's almost so many choices that you have to decide where your sweet spot is and then build from there. You also do consulting with boards on, on ASG. I'm guessing they're starting to get it. What are the biggest challenges you see today with boards and especially around, of course, sustainability, doing sustainability and ESG? You know, it's interesting. I am faculty in an organization called Competent Boards, which does training for boards of directors and prospective boards of directors. And I focus on ESG and more specifically, even both on the strategy, but also on the communication side and where the intersection is with storytelling, communication, marketing, et cetera. And so the challenge is really, to me, helping some of these boards don't have an operational role. They oversee the operators, the management team. People on the board of directors can't go in and develop a marketing strategy. So it's ultimately influence management. And so what I talk to them about is how do you 
know that your organization's entry point is on ESG and how do you, who do you need to persuade to sh- see where the revenue opportunities are in this? So, cause obviously with the Inflation Reduction Act and the Infrastructure Bill and Finance and Chips Act, it's $3 trillion with a T that is there to apply for, but also to leverage because the whole point is to use that as leverage of private capital, right? So these are opportunities. It takes away some of the technical risk. It takes away some of the financial risk. I mean, even big companies can access some of this funding if they're doing the right thing, doing some of these technologies and they have too much risk. And so if you show that to a board and say, okay, do you want to leave money on the table or do you want to seize this opportunity? And by the way, if you want to seize the opportunity, you have to move now. Because somebody else, your competitor is going to do it. So you're either going to lead, follow, or get out of the way. And when you put it in stark P&L terms, A, they have to take notice because that's their fiduciary responsibility, but they do take notice. And more and more, they're ESG-related committees, especially because of compliance issues. They have to report this stuff. And if they don't have the right tracking, the right, I mean, you get the board's attention when you talk about compliance and profit. And then you also tell stories of their competitors doing this kind of work, et cetera. And again, it's telling that story, but it's also finding, it's like any other negotiation, you find your champion. Okay, you find people on the board who get it and you build a relationship that way. Right. But now what's often happening is nominating committees are, and the recruitment firms that focus on board placement are actually looking for ESG talent. They're looking for people who have experience in it because it's now a new thing. The biggest problem is that boards are limited in size and they don't turn over very often. And they have a lot of people who are old school who may be dismissive of it and say, well, I'm just worried about the 10K. And it's like, dude, the 10K now has to have a climate section. When's the last time you read that 10K? I use that a lot to leadership, not so much to boards. Is there a difference when you are consulting or coaching with a leadership team or a member on leadership versus a board? Is there, are there different concerns? Is there a difference? Totally, completely. I mean, it's still, you can still talk about compliance and prop P&L, right? But the management person, the executive, has an operations role. They have to execute it. They have to have the talent. They have to figure out how to get it done. And the board does not. They can say, we need to do this. And then, you know, you figure it out kind of thing. But it's not, and I don't mean it in a, from the board perspective, in a critical way. I mean, their job is not operational. And in fact, if they got involved in operations, it would be inappropriate. So this is a division of labor. The other piece with management is looking at what are the assets both in terms of resource dollars, physical resources, i.e. equipment and properties, but also talent that they have now that they can leverage to get this done, that they can use more efficiently and effectively to get this done. I mean, I'll give you an example. I interviewed the chief sustainability officer of a huge worldwide hotel chain. And she had been CFO for many years. She'd been there for 20-something years. And she became CSO because she would look at the P&L and say, wait a minute, we're spending 
$80 million a year on bulbs. And this is crazy. And we're spending, you know, $80 million a year on energy costs. This is the biggest line or whatever the number is, right? It's the biggest line item in the budget. This is insane. And there's all these new technologies here. So what can we do to tap these technologies? Make a long story short, she did two key things. She negotiated them out of the utility. They became their own utility. They paid off the utility that they were in. And second of all, they realized that by doing something as simple as changing all of the bulbs and all their properties to LED lights, they reduced their carbon footprint, reduced their energy use, and the people who had to change the light bulbs had more time on their hands to do more interesting work because they didn't have to change the bulbs as often because they last like five times as long. And so the people who were whose job was literally to change the bleeping bulbs were like, yay, give me more interesting work to do. Yeah, great example. So, you know, you can tap that and that's the difference. And so there's, you know, you're working with the management team to find those strategies. And it can be financial services. Here's, you know, here are the products that you can offer now that leverage the Inflation Reduction Act, the infrastructure money, et cetera, both to reduce your own carbon footprint and to help your clients and suppliers. This reminds me of doing my homework on you. I saw that you wrote an article last April fighting climate change as a way to make business grow. Exactly. That's what I'm talking about. Any other examples that you that you could Oh gosh, they're all over the place. I mean, you know, putting being able to put money into one area of your business to pivot one area of your business frees up the resources to that you would have spent doing it the old way on the new way. I mean, just like the automotive sector, electric vehicles have 30% fewer car parts. And so one of the aspects that my new friends in the GM and Ford and VW and others are having to go through is how do we take care of our suppliers in this transition? But then how do we use our talent to do other things? And then they end up creating a new revenue stream. Another interesting example is I think it was um, Dell, one of the tech companies told me that they put out, they publicly announced their goals in reducing waste and reducing energy consumption and emissions. And people all over the company came up with cool ideas. And one guy discovered that they could use the byproduct, the waste from one of their manufacturing processes to make an entirely new product that they could then sell and created a whole new revenue stream. And this is what's so exciting today about about this challenge and finding these opportunities within these challenges. And we talked about Gen Z earlier. And does that have to be Gen Z? It could be it could be boom, I don't care, but people love a challenge. People love we all love solving problems. And there's so many opportunities out there. It's so some days it's so easy to feel discouraged, but most of the time that's it's it's so encouraging what has been done and what can be done. Well, that's what I love talking to these women from, and yes, I only interview women on my show because they're on the front lines doing this work and they're all doing amazing stuff that they don't really get to talk about all the time. And one of the things we get to talk about is how do you drive innovation from doing this work and how does doing this work drive innovation? Both directions. It's a motivator. It's like any other 
constriction, when you're know, constraint, you know, the constraint of trying to reduce emissions or reduce waste or reduce energy becomes a creative force to help you come up with a different solution than you ever thought of. We'll give you an interesting example. I mean, I went to Iceland to went from the uh, the country brought me out there. And one of the things they have is they have these office parks, quote unquote, that are circular economies in their own right. So in order to qualify to be in that office park or in that property, you have to show your sustainability profile and the work you're doing. And then you also have to be able to use one of the products or byproducts from one of the other tenants, at least one of the other tenants. And the byproducts or products that you put out have to be able to be used by somebody else in the property. And so it's literally a little mini circular economy in each property. I mean, that's magic. I love that. Yeah. Yeah, That's one of the things that I wrote about is, you know, one of the lessons we can learn from Iceland. They're now also 85% renewable energy. Great example. I've redesigned the show. I'm trying to keep it to to an hour worth of content. This is fantastic. If we're doing this show in five years, what do you think the key topic would be? Or the most important topic would be that. Oh, wow. Well, I think there's a lot of things. One of them is, I think we'll talk about the impact of this $3 trillion from these bills because you can't ignore $3 trillion and they are, they're a big shove in the right direction, in that direction. I think we'll be talking about how, what an impact mandated disclosure has made the SEC rules coming out and the International Sustainable Standards Board, the IFSB criteria and all those requirements. Even now, you can't get a government contract or do a, or many private sector contracts without reporting this stuff and showing how it's verified. I talked to one of my clients who's a mid-sized government contractor, and they told me, the COO told me that 50% of the contracts they apply for, and they already have the IDIQ, they're already pre-qualified, require a sustainability report. 50%, 5-0, that's half of them. So I think we'll be talking about that. I think we'll be talking about the new sectors that have been created that we don't even, we can't even imagine now. I mean, they're being created now. Who knew we were even, I mean, yeah, electric vehicles, you know, were originally invented a long time ago, but they went away. And so all new types of industries are being created. Whole new career paths are being created. Whole new types of trainings are being created. So I think we'll talk about that. And of course, you know, you can't ignore the impact of AI and robotics on this too. So, and the other thing I just want to say is the impact on how we live, the revitalization of neighborhood, the walkability of neighborhoods, more mixed use. I mean, even where I am in DC, there's a whole huge development going on being put in not far from where I am that is going to be a hospital and retail and residential all in one where people can literally walk to the hospital if they need to. And so I think that that, and, and there's going to be a train station there and obviously bus traffic. And so I think that this is all in the interest of reducing carbon footprint, increasing efficient use of space, reducing energy use, reducing waste, that we're improving our lives and making how we live and what we do for a living and even the arts that we enjoy 
more interesting, more efficient, and obviously more green. Fantastic. I look forward to talking to you. It's exciting time. It's a date, Gary. It's yeah, a date. There you go, Joan. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll be calling shortly to uh, set, yeah. <laughs> set that up. Thank you so much. Greatly appreciate it. You're welcome. It's been yes. a pleasure. Thank yes, you so man. much. Thanks for listening. This is just a reminder to follow Doing Sustainability wherever you get your podcast. And please leave a rating and review if you like the show. It helps others discover us. And of course, we want more listeners. If you want to learn more about our agency, Baker, and how we can help you build your corporate brand, align your culture, and evolve your ESG reporting, head to bakerbrand.com. See you in the next episode of Doing Sustainability, where we focus on practical and actionable approaches to sustainability to create long-term value.